good morning and welcome to First Evangelical Presbyterian Church. My name is Candy and I direct the Tower Bells. Uh, the piece that we're going to play for you this morning is called Jubilate and it's by Kevin McChesney. He's wonderful with lots of percussion stuff. Bells are percussion. So in this piece you're going to hear us uh, you see Jack playing with sticks on his drums. Well, we have mallets. So these are going to be hitting bells. You'll hear the little plunks. We also play what is called martellato. We call them marts. And so it's just a real short one where we take the bell. And Kevin McChesney told us it couldn't start from here down because then you have a chance of cracking your bell. But it's, he said, two tacos off the table. So when you see us do these little marts, you'll see them real close to the table. So anyway, that's what we're doing. And then our second piece are two um, praise hymns that we sang, oh gosh, probably 15 years ago. We bow down and great is the uh, Lord. So if you have been here for 15 or 20 years, you will notice, you will recognize the tunes for that one.
Well, good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord this morning. I'm Pastor Bruce. If we've not met yet before, welcome everybody and online. Glad you're with us, joining us in worship in our Savior Jesus Christ this morning. We're here to celebrate our risen Christ and our company together as God has brought us together as a united body in Jesus Christ and to be fed and encouraged by his word. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will be alive and active during this time together that we'll all head into the week ahead with the refreshment that only the Spirit can bring. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us to your house today. We're thankful, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thankful, Father, for your Holy Spirit's presence here right now in our hearts and working your will and your way in us and through us, that your love will fill our hearts and your love will overflow through us to the world around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We're thankful, Father, that when Christ was buried, that wasn't the end, that you raised him from the grave, and he ascended into heaven, and he's coming back someday. And in the interim, Lord, we live by faith with certain hope and meaning in this world and purpose and mission. And we thank you, God, that you've blessed us with your living presence and salvation in Christ. We are so grateful to you. We come this morning to worship you, to proclaim your glory, to be fed by your word. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Yeah. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us, forgive us, as we Let your kingdom come. 
chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms hymns and songs from the spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yes. Amen. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for all the things you do, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. 
definition of love and we are so grateful father to be your children you're the perfect father our abba our daddy lord we thank you so much there's just a million ways to thank you uh, and lord we just love you and praise you this morning thank you in jesus name
Father, we have just thanked you for your forgiving grace, that your love for us, Lord God, knows no end, that you're persistent, you're a constancy in our lives, and God, we thank you that even on our worst day, you still love us. Even on our worst day, our sins are forgiven by your grace. Lord, we thank you that we're a work in progress, and your Holy Spirit lives within us shaping and molding us and transforming our thoughts and our attitudes, leading to our behaviors, Lord God, that give you glory and honor and praise. We thank you, God, that we are who we are together, unified in Jesus, fed by your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that our love for you and our love for each other will dominate our thinking and our actions that we will live into your truth, non-essential things that don't matter except on an individual level, Lord, will not divide anyone, that we will truly be a family in Christ Jesus, unified around the truth of your word, the living presence of your spirit, the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for who we are and what we're becoming, the glory that awaits, a new heaven, a new earth, eternal life. Thank you for forgiving us, setting us free, that we can love with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We have an announcement here. Dennis wants to talk about the church camp out that's coming up. Where are you at, Dennis? You're right there. Okay. Dennis knows where he is. That's a good thing. All right. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dennis Conser. So with this nice weather the last couple of uh, days, it uh, turns my mind to um, to camping. It's My mind turns to uh, church camp out. It's time to make reservations. I know it's a little far in advance, but um, now is the time to make reservations or we don't get them. So we're looking at uh, Thursday through Sunday, September 5th through 8th um, at Nahalem Bay State Park this year. So we're going to pass a couple of um, clipboards. Um, it's, you can make reservations now and cancel them later. It's much easier if you think that you're going to go at all. Um, please sign up and make a note and talk to me. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. We'll be there. Uh, Jenny and I are planning on being there Thursday and Friday nights, and then Saturday night we'll be back for church on Sunday. But you can come the whole time, and it's no, no program or anything like that. It's just a really enjoyable time to be together and see each other in a new light. Yeah, and don't feel like you've got to come the whole time. Yeah. yeah, it should be fun. It's a lot of fun. And the reason we're doing this now and clear out in September is you can't make reservations later 
it just gets too filled up too fast, so we're trying to beat the rush. Now the kids are free to head down the hallway now for Sunday school, and Gabe's here for middle high schoolers, so have a good time with Gabe down there. Awesome. Thanks, Gabe. And I also want to thank our nursery workers, um, really a great vital ministry here at the church, and I thank God for all of them. It's a wonderful gift. For those of us that are remaining in the sanctuary, we're going to listen to the bells first. See, she's standing right there to remind me. And uh, <laughs> I remembered only at the last second. God is good. Let's celebrate with music all the time. Thirteen to sixteen, cell phones, iPads, whatever you've got, the Word of God. We're going to look through this together. Uh, there, this is a two-part message. It got a little too long to compress into one piece. Uh, what Paul wrote was one piece, shaped like an hourglass in its thinking, and I'll, I'll outline that next week. But to look at just the verses thirteen through sixteen today, with a touch on seventeen, then we'll pick up on verse seventeen through twenty-three next Sunday. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for how wonderful you are, how present you are, how faithful, how enduring in our lives. Lord God, we have 
matters of conscience that are individualized, that different people's conscience will affect them in different ways and impact their lives. And Lord, we thank you for the diversity. We also thank you, Father, for the unity we have and the truth of when your Bible speaks clearly, we can be equally clear and unified. And so, Lord, we pray that all that we are and all that we do will be pleasing in your sight and give you glory as we rally around Christ together. In his name we pray. Amen. Just a little bit of backdrop before I read this. Paul is writing to the Christian community in Rome. They're made up of Gentile, non-Jewish Christian people and Jewish Christian people, and they're having a little bit of a difficult time getting along. There's divisions. And those divisions that they're struggling with, if they're theological and biblical, well, then that's something Paul was going to iron out. So the first 11 chapters... Paul talks about grace, and we're saved by faith and faith alone in reliant upon God's grace, a free gift to us in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul spends a tremendous amount of time on theology. When he gets to chapter 12, then he gets to the so what? What are you going to do about it? He, he starts off with therefore. And the latter part of Romans that we're in now as we're approaching closer and closer to the end are all related to that therefore, knowing God like we do, so this is what we should do. And at this point, verse, uh, chapter 14 all the way through to chapter 15, verse 13, is all about the differences that can occur in any church anywhere that are non-essential differences. And if the differences that are not important, not clear, but yet our conscience might think or impress upon us they're important for us as individuals, they can create trouble in the unity of the church and our witness in the world. So Paul is very intent on making sure that we keep our priorities straight, our heads on straight, that we live for Jesus, we have glory to God, and we don't get lost in the weeds. We don't get lost in the peripheral rabbit trails that the Holy Spirit may individually lead us on, but collectively, we need to stay on the main path. And so here's where we're at today as Paul continues to talk about the differences we may have that are not important, that are non-essential, that aren't listed as sins or declared by God to be even good do this per se. But how do we get along when different matters of tradition or conscience bother us? Here's what Paul says. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then it is for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. There's several sayings about conscience. Maybe you're aware of some of them. Mark Twain said, A clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. Probably true, isn't it? I think... Mark Twain was quite clever. Others we may know more clearly, a clear conscience laughs at false accusations. 
A clear conscience is the best sleep aid. There's no pillow so soft as a clear conscience. And then I ran across a cartoon, and it's this man sitting in the psychiatrist's office, and he says to the psychiatrist, I feel guilty about my clear conscience. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, it gets a little odd, doesn't it? Um, sometimes we ignore our conscience, but we shouldn't. God gave us a conscience, and sometimes one person's conscience will bother them on some issue, and another Christian sitting next to them isn't bothered by that at all. How can that be? How can we get along? How can we live with that kind of a difference? And this is what Paul is writing about. So let's do a quick internal audit with this rather ominous background. In other words, the finger is pointing at me and you together, okay? A very serious question that we need to consider. Verse 13a, a quick internal audit, 13a, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. He's not talking about right and wrong and ethics that are clearly stated in the Bible, like don't lie, don't steal, don't bear false testimony, don't hate and murder and all that kind of stuff. That's very clear. Paul isn't saying, let's not talk about that. He is. He's saying, you can talk all about that you want. That's biblical. It's rooted in the Word of God. But where it's non-essential, where it's vague or it's up to your conscience, then let's be careful. We don't judge each other based on our own opinions or feelings or conscience. He says that must not be done. So the question here, he says, is are you being judgmental along those lines amongst other Christians about disputable, non-essential things? Maybe it's a tradition. Well, at our church, we... And when I grew up, we... And you can just fill in the blanks. And that can impact how we affect our worship services together based on what we know from tradition, what we were used to. And that can have a powerful impact. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just your experience, your traditions. Um, others, it's like a conscience issue. And there are very many of them. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I a better judge than God? When we are critical of another Christian's perspective or behavior, and the Bible is neutral about that, then we're putting ourselves into God's place and declaring something to be right or wrong based on what we think and not necessarily what God thinks. And that is something we have to be very careful with. We don't want to muddy up the waters unnecessarily. The EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, nationwide, if you were to look at their website, has three sentences that I think are very useful in terms of general application. It says this, in essentials, unity. When it's essential, when it's critical, when it's biblical, when it's just right there, plain as day, we have unity. We should all agree that that is what God wants us to know and do and be in our behavior. And we will have, we'll have no questions about those things. We have unity. The Bible is our manual of operations. It's what holds us together in Christ. Now, the second line is this. In non-essentials, liberty. Non-essentials, liberty. One of the things I really liked about our book of order, which you may not know what that is, but it's kind of how we cooperate nationwide as a denomination. Certain things we hold in common. We have a 
seven essentials of faith required for all of our leaders, not eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, seven essential ones. To be a member of the church, you just have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We figure if God accepts you, we do too, right? We're all a work in progress. Babies, mature adults, it's, it's all there as God works in all of our hearts and minds. But we have liberty. We have liberty on those areas where only God would tell you what he wants you to do. And in all things, charity or love, considering what's best for the other person to the extent that we can as we honor God. That's what we want to do. And I think the EPC has got a great motto. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, love. It's good. So the lesson that I derive from this is be careful that I, and you have to take it as a first person, so I'm just going to speak for me. I have to be careful not to judge another believer in Jesus Christ based on my feelings or my personal opinions or my conscience or my traditions, if the Bible doesn't say otherwise. It's just something I have to keep track of, and I think that's good for all of us. The Bible, just to tell you a little definition, when Paul talks about strong Christians and weak Christians, they're both mature Christians, but the strong are really at liberty to exercise and behave in areas that others feel restricted by their conscience or traditions to do. Those that feel restricted in the Spirit aren't lacking faith, their faith isn't weak, but their conscience or their traditions prevent them from fully engaging in the freedoms that we have in Christ. He mentions food in this context, but it's anything like that that we're free to celebrate and enjoy. That would be a strong Christian's perspective, but a weak Christian means their conscience is bugging them, they just can't go there, or they're so used to something they can't let it go, and that's okay. We just don't want to trample on each other without love. So what we must do, Paul gives us that application. Verse 13b, instead, he says, instead of being judgmental about non-essential things, he says, instead, make up your mind. Make up your mind ahead of time. Decide this morning. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. What does that mean? Well, Jenny and I try to, when we're at the mall, we try to walk past C's candies. Many of you know we have a chocoholic issue with our, our family dynamic. And so we're really proud of ourselves if we can manage to walk by. And we will literally say, we just walked by C's. We kind of pat each other on the back, like, good job, you know. But occasionally, even on this, this quasi-diet that we're trying to follow, which is not for me, very successful. Um, we walked into C's. And I always have a dilemma when I walk into C's. Would you like a uh, sample? Dark or milk? Now, I've just divided the entire church with that simple statement. <laughs> some of you are dark chocolate fans. It's the only way to go. And some of you are milk chocolate fans. Those dark chocolate people don't know what they're talking about. Those are matters of conscience, opinion, traditions, taste, right? But if I was to walk into C's with somebody who loves milk chocolate and look down my nose at you because I'm buying dark chocolate, I might say to you, how can you possibly buy milk chocolate? That's not good for you. You should only buy dark chocolate. And then we found out that C's only has 62% dark chocolate and you're supposed to have 70 or more percent for it to be any good for you. So it's all bad for you anyway. <laughs> I found out. So I go in there and I'm struggling with, do I want the dark chocolate buttercream? Yes. 
Do I want the dark chocolate mint truffle? Oh, sure. But what if I went into seas and I was with a brittle diabetic, a fragile diabetic, who had a real problem not eating everything, who really loved chocolate and just couldn't resist? Now, would I go into seas and say, tough on you, I want a chocolate and I should have the freedom to buy a chocolate. You'll just have to deal with it. And then I watch them hover over the counter and start to salivate, and they go, you know what? One won't hurt. And then there's two. Have I loved them, or have I just loved me? It's just me. The biblical principle is don't hurt your fellow brother or sister in Jesus Christ over non-essential issues. I will walk past seas for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ. You see what I'm saying? This is an analogy of all the issues that could possibly arise that are differences between us on those non-essential issues. And that's something that we want to keep in mind. The solution, I need to make up my mind for the sake of others and not my own that I will love them the best way I can for their sake and not just my own selfish interests. In fact, make up your mind is not a suggestion or a teaching. The grammar is an imperative command. We must make up our mind. No choice in the matter. We're required by God to make up our mind ahead of time, not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in front of a brother or sister. And frankly, what it really means is, by judge, it means use your best judgment. Because things are flexing. You can't read people's minds. You may not even know what's bothering them. You may not recognize something's bothering you. But the point is, as you go along on a daily basis and stuff happens and the life is flexible and kind of chaotic at times or unknown to you, and you become aware of it, you need to make up your mind on the go and be ready to do it as you experience it so that we don't hurt our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's an old saying, I really like this. It's so true. I think it really speaks to all of us. Everybody's normal until you get to know them. Isn't that the absolute truth? You share enough stories around the campfire or around the table down there, and pretty soon you find out that you too? Wow, we have a lot more in common than I ever thought. These are the things that are, that are really good to keep in mind. We all have hiccups. We all have hang-ups. I think that all of us on some level have a weakness that our conscience or our traditions stop us from changing. And we're accountable to God for those things and not anybody else. So let's look at how this plays out. Alcohol or not? Cards or not? Movies or not? Working or shopping on Sundays or not? Vegan or not? Married or not? Masks or not? That's a hot one. I talked to one church in the middle of COVID where they were struggling with the whole mask issue and the secretary said, when this is all over, we've got a lot of healing to do. Is that a sin issue or a personal preference issue? It's a hard one. It's a conscience issue. A lot of churches responded in very different ways, and the church communities responded in many different ways. 30% reduction in attendance typically across the nation after COVID let up. Why? Churches became divided over certain things as well. Hurt feelings happened. People became judgmental about all kinds of things. 
That was just recently, and we went through that, and it wasn't easy, and we did experience a lot of diversity of perspectives, feelings, responses, behaviors, but we needed to keep Christ in mind, and I think we did for the most part. Um, immunizations or not, children or not, and how many if you do? I remember one time I applied for, um, or I was interested in mission service in Egypt early on, and I was looking at a Muslim ministry there that you bring Christ to those people, and I was looking at it, and I was talking to the person that was their recruiter, and he said, how many kids do you have? And I said, well, I have two. He said, don't have any more. I was done with that guy. You know, isn't that a matter of conscience? What if I was a multimillionaire? You think I can't afford it? The man just had this clear-cut sense of, you can't have more than two kids. Well, that's not where I was headed, although we ended up with two kids. God knew. How about classical styles of music or modern styles of music? Or how about some churches have no musical instruments at all? How about worship services, both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, like we had last year? The Martin House had a little bit of a conundrum about that with grandkids coming up. But you know, that, that only happens every six or five or six or 11 years. It varies all the time, depending upon the lunar cycle and all that, apparently. But it's a matter of conviction as to what God would want, and we chose. How about celebrating Ash Wednesday and Lent? You can't find either one of those in Scripture, but it's not a bad tradition. And a lot of people celebrate that, and it's okay. There are so many different possible non-essential disputable things that can uh, the leaders of the church or families of the church or individuals of the church or any church will find differences in. And the key piece is don't let those things divide us, ruin our fellowship, derail us, cause anybody's growth in Jesus to be harmed. We want what God wants and so we don't want to put any stumbling blocks or obstacles in anyone's way. So what's a stumbling block? Well, if you're like me, the immediate thing that comes to mind is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 123, he mentions that Jesus, for the Jews, is a stumbling block. They fell over him without faith and belief that he could be the Messiah. They just tripped up over Jesus. So there's to me, the clearest example of a stumbling block in Paul's writing. Here, though, in this case, it means something a little different. And perhaps 1 Corinthians 8, 9, later on in that same letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, we get a better view of it. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, we're harming their growth and service and joy in Jesus Christ by harming their conscience. Things that they just don't feel free to exercise that you feel free to do. So we need to be aware of our surroundings. If you're a mature Christian in the strong category where you're really free to exercise all those freedoms in Christ and you're with a brother or sister who isn't, what are you going to do? You're going to set aside your freedoms for their spiritual blessings from God and their growth in Christ. That's limiting when we're together. Now, when you're not together, exercise your freedoms. That's something that Paul would want us to remember. So what's a stumbling block? Whatever hurts a Christian's spiritual growth and service to Jesus. Maybe you divide fellowship when that happens. Maybe you take your eyes off the Lord and Satan gets a foothold. 
from experience, you know, unintentionally. Have you ever hurt a brother or sister in Christ somehow, in some way, over some silly, ridiculous nonsense, non-essential? If you're a Christian long enough, you will. You will. And you don't do it intentionally. It's accidentally. My friend Galen, who passed away a while back, he says, you know, when you go to a new church, you don't know where the cobwebs are until you get them all over your face. Right? It's the same thing with our relationships. When we spend time with each other and we get to know each other, we suddenly realize, oh my goodness, there's a cobweb on my face I didn't realize was even there. Or sometimes when the light shines in here, you see cobwebs at different places at different times of day. You ever had that at home? You know, so we're always kind of knocking one down here that we didn't see earlier. Well, it's like that when we're with our brothers and sisters. There will be things that we'll discover as time goes by annoyed them, and we didn't mean to, or stifled their joy in fellowship together. You find that they've distanced themselves, or they've separated themselves, and you wonder what happened. And it turns out that something non-essential had taken place, and they just couldn't get over it. Now, if it's unintentional, there's nothing you can do about that, except when you find out, then what are you going to do as a Christian? Confess your sins to one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Or, I miss you. What, did I hurt you in any way? In other words, transparency, openness, honesty. The Bible says that far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everybody, which means as best you can without sinning. So we want to leave our gift at the altar. We want to run to that brother or sister who's been wounded, right? We want to focus on repair. Sometimes you can't do it but we want to try as best we can. What we never want to do is to hurt somebody on purpose, to flaunt our freedom in their face, thinking they just need to grow up. You need to get your stuff together. What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with them. That's the Holy Spirit's work in them. Let God be the guide, and let's not cause a stumbling block that trips up their fervor, their love, their joy, their fellowship, their ministry, their worship together. It can happen, but don't, don't do it intentionally. Make up your mind. Keep your eyes and ears open. Use your best judgment each and every day. So what's an obstacle? Is there any difference? He talks about stumbling blocks. Then he talks about obstacles, like they're two separate things. And they, it's not really so different, but there's a nuance to this that the Bible helps us appreciate. When you talk about an obstacle, you're causing someone to sin. It's like an added level that now not only are you dividing fellowship and stuff, but you may be actually causing them to sin. Let's look at examples. All the underlined there in your outlines, those underlined words, are the same Greek word that was used for obstacle. Look how it's used. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they'll weed out of his kingdom everything that what? causes sin and all who do evil. Matthew 16, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block. Now that's actually obstacle in Greek to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Matthew 18, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. That's obstacle. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. And 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. 
how can someone fall into sin over a cheeseburger? How? Because if their conscience says, it's a sin for me to eat a cheeseburger, and it's an offense to God, it's a personal work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And when you push a cheeseburger into their mouth and say, come on, have a bite, tastes great, you'll love it, come on, get over it, it's, the, it's a silly thing that you're hung up on, they are not sinning in the terms of a list of sins, but their conscience that's given to them by the Holy Spirit is then violated. Who gave them that conscience to not eat the cheeseburger? We're not talking about diet and health. We're just talking about a conscience issue. God did. And if we don't respect that, we're causing them to sin against God. It wouldn't be a sin for you if you ate it, but it would be a sin for them. And Paul says, I don't ever want to do that, especially on purpose, right? So what can we learn? Well, use your best judgment based on love, what's in the best interest as God would want it, not your freedom or limitations in Jesus. Weak or strong, love and respect goes both ways. Strong don't look down on the weak and ignore their conscience, and the weak don't make a bunch of rules and regulations to protect their conscience so that everybody has to have your own sense of values along those non-essential lines, right? So make up your mind right now, this morning, to not hinder or ruin another Christian's life in Jesus and growth service. That's a great place to be. Paul says, do it right now and going forward. Now, here we go. Third, non-essential de decisions are determined by God. Non-essential decisions are determined by God. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced, Paul has considered himself a strong Christian, full of freedoms, I'm fully convinced that no food, as an example, is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, and it could be anything, any conscience issue, then for him it is what? Unclean clean. In itself, it's not, but their conscience says it is, and that's enough. That's enough. So two things might help us here. The Jewish Christian community grew up with Moses. They grew up with kosher food laws. You can't eat this. You can't eat that. You don't mix meat and dairy together. Lots of rules in the Old Testament that are ceremonial and to separate them from the surrounding communities as God's people. These are the things that were still present in the Jewish Christian community at the church. Some of them just couldn't eat non-kosher foods. Foods the Gentile Christian community probably loved. Cheeseburgers, bring it on. The Jewish community, ah! Did God care? Not biblically referenced in the New Testament as essential, but it's a matter of conscience. They couldn't let it go sometimes. The Gentile Christian community used to sacrifice wine and meat to the pagan idols. And for some of them, it was almost like post-traumatic stress disorder. They, they just couldn't go back to doing what they used to do now that they found faith in Jesus Christ. And to them, if they ate meat or drank wine, it had pagan idolatry written all over it, and it was like playing with a Ouija board as a Christian. You did the light and dark mixed up together. And now that's very clear, by the way. That is not a non-essential issue. But I'm just saying it felt that bad for them. It felt that demonic to them, and they couldn't do it. So what's unclean 
anything that's unholy, impure, or defiled by the world. And on certain matters, that can vary, like food, and we need to be aware of it. If someone's faith in Jesus considers something non-essential to be unclean to them, it is. And I want to talk to those of you this morning that might feel pressure. A weak Christian, remember, you're not immature, you're mature, but your conscience is there on certain issues or traditions. You have no reason why you need to explain yourself. That's where you're coming from. That's your conscience. That's you and God, and that's where it needs to be kept. In fact, next Sunday, I believe it is, Paul writes and says, whatever you think about these things, keep to yourself. It's between you and God. This is how important this is. So Paul knows, eat what you want. But some people say, I just can't do that. I won't eat eggplant, not because I think it's unholy, it just tastes bad. (laughs) And you can have eggplant next to me. If I don't order eggplant, it is not a conscience issue. Again, to get to know somebody is very important. We don't read each other's minds. If something's bothering you and dis- distracting you and taking you out of the joy of fellowship in Christ Jesus, would you please say so? But also, and that allows us to adjust, but don't make rules and regulations and expect that beyond that moment together, you're expecting everybody to have your conscience on those issues all the time. It's okay. It's okay. It's you and God. And that's what we all want. So what's the key? I think it's love. It's unloving, isn't it, to disrespect and dishonor one another, to care less about what somebody's feelings are grappling with in their mind. It's not loving. To love is, I want what's God's best for you. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a key ingredient. Verse 15, if your brother is distressed... If a Christian is distressed because of what you eat or do or drink, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. They belong to Jesus, not to you or to me. And we need to be aware of that. What does it mean to be distressed? They're in pain. It saddens them. They're grieving. They're hurting. If you have those feelings, it's nice to be able to tell the other person, don't make them read your mind. Say, this is really hard for me. I'm struggling right here. Could you not do this for a little bit, just for my sake? And don't be embarrassed. It's you and God. Again, don't make rules for them. Be gracious to them. Love and respect goes both ways. But let's hear from each other so that we can do the best we can to work together in unity for Christ. That's so important. And then he got the strange phrase, do not destroy. It's actually another imperative command. There's no way around it. We must, absolutely must, not destroy a brother or sister in Jesus. Absolutely not. He's not talking about annihilating their salvation, but could you ruin someone's assurance of forgiveness in Jesus where they're not sure they're saved because they violated their conscience? Could that possibly happen? Could could they see their joy diminished? Could they see their relationships start to 
drift and fall apart and break because they're not having a good time. They're sad, struggling in pain somehow. Paul says, let's not let that happen. Let's have unity in Jesus. And I want to remind us how powerful the grace of God is. You're not going to destroy someone's salvation. That is a God thing. You can't get them saved, and you can't get them unsaved. Again, it's a gift of God. If you look at Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is he that condemns? Well, sometimes we do a good job condemning ourselves, don't we? Especially if our conscience is on fire, and we look at ourselves and we think, Oh, man, and all that. We've got to be careful with that, too. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is what? Interceding for us. You'll not lose your salvation. We might struggle sometimes, but our salvation is held by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus hangs on to us. So destroying it might ruin their assurance of salvation, might ruin their peace, might ruin their joy, might ruin their Christian fellowship and community, Church splits, friendships fracture, people feel excluded, they lose their fervor in ministry. That can happen, but it's up to each one of us not to let that take root. Satan would love to bench us. God never does. There's more to be done. God never gives up on anybody or casts anybody out who he knows by his grace he is saved. Stay in it. Stay in worship. Stay in service. And if you need help, come see me. Um, I can pray with you and listen and talk and share together. Does your conscience ever bother you concerning non-essential issues? It's highly likely that's probably true for all of us on some level. In fact, you want an example. I was thinking of the best example I could think of of non-essential struggles between two Christians. How about that first year or two of marriage? Do you want the toothpaste tube squeezed from the bottom or do you want it squeezed in the middle? The old classic toilet seat up or toilet seat down. Do you want this? Do you want that? Do we spend Thanksgiving at mom's or dad's or yours or mine? How, and how many, you know, there's just a, what kind of china do you want if you want even china? What kind of plates do you want? What kind of glasses do you want? What kind of spoons and knives and forks do you want? Now, usually that's, you better listen to the women, man. I'm just telling you from experience. Um, you know, these are household things. A lot of items, a lot of things, a lot of non-essential disputes, things that go on all the time. How do we move forward? Well, love and respect are critical in any relationship, and the church is a relationship with Jesus first and foremost and each other. Love and respect. That's what Paul's talking about. So, weak must never make rules and regulations for the strong. Don't let your conscience cause everybody else to comply. That's you and God. Strong shouldn't exercise their freedoms at the expense of the weak. Freedom in Christ is subordinate to the spiritual well-being of others. When the weak and the strong are united in love and respect, we glorify God together in Jesus. Isn't that what we want to do? Isn't that the hallmark of our aim? I want to glorify God. And I'm not going to let my own issues get in the way of our unity and our service and our worship. Not ever. We must not. And I think love is the key. What is God's best right now? Use your best judgment along those lines.
Then lastly, stand firm with essentials. I just have to conclude with this because we're talking about non-essentials, and I don't want anybody to think, well, everything is up to us. We can decide for ourselves. There are limits to this. Non-essentials are where the Bible is not clear. We're not going to find a verse or a strong principle that guides our actions. This is a conscience moment, but when we do know what it says, we're sticking to it. Here's what he wrote. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Now, in this case, he's talking about your conscience. If your conscience allows you to dance or play cards, for example, don't let somebody tell you it's a gross sin and an offense to God. It's a conscience issue. That's partly what Paul is saying. He's looking for liberty here. In non-essentials, there's liberty. But it also has the same principle that goes across the board. When God says it's wrong, it's just wrong. If God says it's a sin and it's unethical, it just is. And we're not going to make up our own mind about that as to whether or not we're going to take it or not. It is. And so we'll embrace those. But it also affects your conscience. You and God need to decide these things. And keep it to yourselves with God as we'll find out. If we argue over those things, we really misrepresent the gospel. I want to tell you how strong this is. In verse 16, it says, Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. I underlined several words, but in Greek, there's just one word that is translated in many words. You know what it is? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Paul says, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, because if you do, it's blasphemous. What is blasphemy? Misrepresenting God. To say things that aren't of God. To mischaracterize God. He says that's a terrible thing to do. Look at some examples. Blasphemy can Blasphemy can be against God or God's name. Romans 2.14, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking about bad behavior that ruins our witness for Christ. That can be a problem, isn't it? Then maybe it's against the Word of God, against Scripture. Titus, so that no one will malign the Word of God. That would be blasphemous. And then the third one I came across was it's an indirect blasphemy if a person of faith is slandered or ridiculed or lied about in the public square. They're blaspheming God indirectly. Look at the example, Acts 6. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Well, that wasn't true. But then what they're doing is they're discounting what Stephen said about God. And that would be blasphemy. So the very thing they're accusing him of is what they're doing in a roundabout way. Church splits or fights about colors or music or decorations are all blasphemous. If we ruin another believer's ministry and service over non-essential issues, that's blasphemous. If we tell somebody their conscience is wrong, that they need to be like you or me, they need to be strong, come on, do it anyway. It's, the Bible says nothing about it. What's your problem? That's blasphemous because they're accountable to God and not to us. 
And that's something he's very strong on. And then we'll pick up with verse 17 next Sunday. For the kingdom of God, at the center of it all, where we need to keep our eyes and our attention, the values we need to keep in the forefront of our thinking and our actions, he says this, the kingdom of God, and I'll explain more about what that is next Sunday, is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of these non-essential hiccups and hang-ups. That's really not what it's all about. But of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants us to focus on. And we'll pick that up again next Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you so much for calling us to believe in Jesus. And Lord, we are uh, unique, each one of us, a craftsmanship, your unique creation, all made in your image as you intend us to be. We thank you, God, that all of our sins are forgiven on the cross with Christ. He willingly took those upon himself to satisfy your justice and to apply mercy to us that we don't get what we deserve. Father, help us to appreciate the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus, to have the assurance of our salvation, to know that we are right with you now, Lord God, with that gratitude in our hearts. Help us to be right with each other, to forgive as you have forgiven us, to love one another that covers a multitude of sins, to be open and honest and transparent, to give up our freedoms when necessary for the sake of another. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit's work. I want to say thank you, God, for this body of Christ as well. I thank you, Lord, that there is a unity here that I sure value, and I know that you do even more, that we are united in your word and the truth of your gospel, that Christ Jesus is the head of the church, our Lord and our Savior, and that, Lord, your, your values, your virtues, your kingdom's work in Christ are about righteousness and peace and joy, and that all comes from the Holy Spirit. Help us to keep first things first and to honor you with our very lives and to love one another as you have loved us. Thank you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father, which is just so tremendous, it's just incomprehensible, really, how vast and deep God's love truly is for all of us. And may the merciful grace of Jesus Christ bless each and every one of you and the wonderful fellowship of the Holy Spirit bring you joy and all blessings this week and forever. And all of God's people could say, Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week ahead. Come on down to the Fellowship Hall. We've got some really good, fun goodies down there, I know, because we brought them. And have a great time together. God bless. <laughs>